0: Welcome to Grandma Magic, a podcast from the Grandmother Collective. We are a nonprofit organization that supports and advocates for a world where grandmother's power is seen, cultivated, and activated for positive change. The Grandma Magic podcast is an opportunity to learn more about the unique positions that grandmothers, aunties, and other older women around the world can play in advancing positive social development by talking to and learning from changemakers. We hope this series inspires you, brings you joy, and helps you recognize the enduring magic and wisdom that comes from grandmothers everywhere. My name is Lindsay Farrell, and I'm your host. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Sarita Mohanti. Sarita has a 25-year history of diverse experience in hospital and healthcare delivery. She's a doctor, a medical administrator, a public health specialist, and is now the president and CEO of the SCAN Foundation, one of the largest foundations in the U.S. focused on life and health for older Americans. Her focus has been on social determinants of health, and at Kaiser Permanente, she led the development of Thrive Local, a referral network of health systems, government agencies, and community groups that provide social services, including housing, food, and utilities. I'm so thrilled she can join us to share about the work that really gets to the heart of what we're thinking about at the Grandmother Collective. How do we equip the majority of people to thrive? So thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Lindsay. Thank you so much. So we normally start out with a question about the influence of grandmothers, really believing that most people have some grandmother figure that was important in their life. Do you want to share maybe about one of those figures in yours? Yeah, absolutely.
1: And first of all, I love this podcast and I love the premise and what it seeks to achieve. So I really appreciate the opportunity. And I think grandmothers for me uh, have a very important role in society, in health, in well-being. You know, I unfortunately actually had two grandmothers who I didn't see very often. They both lived in India. And so we would only see them infrequently. I mean, quite honestly, infrequently when we visited India or when they came to visit us. So I didn't necessarily have that relationship with my grandmothers as maybe some do who are close geographically to their grandmothers. But that being said, I will just call out that both my grandmothers were strong forces of nature who took care of families and were deeply committed to supporting their children and their grandchildren and even their great-grandchildren. And they were extremely resilient. I feel like during trials and tribulations and disruptions, they were the driving force, the spirit, the wisdom that helped our families address any multitude of challenges, whether it was people passing, people dealing with illnesses, and also offering the positive aspects of food and culture and things that were so important to me. So, what I can tell you about is a grandmother figure that is important in my life is my own mother, who is also a grandmother to four grandchildren, and three of whom are my children. And her name is Sushma, and she was born in 1949 in India, emigrated to the United States in the mid to late 60s, or actually 69, to be frank. And she was the eldest daughter of two loving parents and a very, very, very large extended family. And she was married through an arranged marriage at the age of 19. And... Literally, I mean, I always tell this story, she met my father on a Saturday and was married on a Thursday, the following four days later, because he had to go back to the United States to start his job, and she was still in India. That being said, you can imagine what kind of strength that took to come to a new country, raise a family, understand a new culture. She actually had to give up some of her academic or career aspirations to take care of us. And what I really appreciate about my mom, who is now a grandmother, first of all, she embodied our cultural beliefs, our spirituality, had a very generous spirit, was very highly devoted. So, she infused that into us and then subsequently into our children. So, you see that, that generous spirit. And devotion come from it sits in my children as well so as a grandmother that's really important you know she brings kindness and i use the word resilience because when i think about resilience she recovered from disruptions some better than others but she found a way that inner strength that spirituality to do that And even when my father passed away, you know, in 2018, she found a way to say, well, I'm going to continue to be committed to my family. I'm going to continue to be a person of faith. I'm going to find things that give me purpose in life, you know, and she wasn't perfect and she's not perfect. I mean, she's still here and my kids see her as near perfect, but she didn't always advocate for herself and gave more than I think she received sometimes, but that's who she is. And that's her fundamental worldview is like a world where people are happier. And she f- feels that she can do that through her giving and her contributions to society. So that's who comes to mind when I think of a grandmother and a near-perfect grandmother.
0: In <laughs> and then I'm biased. You know, it's so interesting. We had on our last podcast a woman really talking about the eldering process and how there's this line And that the gram, it's almost like the mitochondrial DNA, actually, someone talked about it really early on in our podcast, that like, she feels that because we're able to really track mitochondrial DNA, and it goes through the women, that that culturally, also seems to be a piece that's emerging, like that, that's really what's so special about the grandmother role, is that you're basically seeing the line, and you can see it passed down through you, through the children, your children, you will be reflected in your children's children and et cetera, et cetera, in perpetuity. But there's just these inheritances, I guess. It's genetic almost. Yeah, Yeah, that's
1: really interesting.
0: Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that
1: way. But it yeah, that
0: mitochondrial DNA. (laughs) So okay, I guess we're pivoting to science. So tell us about your background. You actually have pursued many courses of studies. So including at my alma mater, Boston University, where I think you also did some of your graduate work. What was this pathway? What are some of the decision points?
1: I often say to folks that both my personal and my professional journey really brought me to where I am today, which is the SCAN Foundation. And first and foremost, you know, I'm an internal medicine physician. I've, I think, throughout my career have been devoted as a clinician to supporting lower-income populations, communities of color. I practiced for decades in a safety net, what we call county systems of care, those ones for mostly those uninsured and Medicaid-eligible populations. And I think what really, from the professional standpoint, really influenced my path was that As I started to recognize early on, even in medical school, when I was at Boston University, I trained at Boston Medical Center, was formerly Boston City Hospital, and I just started to see these grave systemic kind of inefficiencies and real poor coordination and integration of health especially for those who are most vulnerable, whether they're low income, whether they're a racial ethnic minority group, or even as, you know, now my working with older adults. So somebody asked me one day, like, what is your purpose? If you're looking at all of these, what do you want to do? And I said, my purpose is to improve the health and well being of those most vulnerable populations. And that's really, I think it was through my experiences. A great example is I was a third year medical student doing rotations at Boston City, Boston Medical Center, And we were at the kind of, I would say, tail end of kind of the early 90s of the AIDS epidemic and a lot of advanced AIDS because not everybody was getting all the treatments for HIV. And particularly, this was really predominant in communities of color and at Boston Medical Center we saw. And so I used to see people who would literally, and these communities, die in the hospitals because they had no social supports or they didn't have the means or income to be able to even allow them the opportunity to even die gracefully at home.
0: And it was so heavily stigmatized too, right? So you also had people that families were not connecting with them.
1: Yeah. And I just wondered, I mean, I was a third year medical student going, why am I seeing this in this facility in this part of town? And then you go to some other place where people have been on medications and they're not even having to deal with advanced AIDS. So there was definitely access challenges and there were upstream factors that were really determining what kind of care. And that was really highly inequitable, right? And I didn't even know that word at the time, like the words of disparity and inequity in the real truest sense, but it was already these social determinants of health, These drivers of health that impacted so much the health and well-being of these populations just started to really resonate with me, and that really helped shape my trajectory. So that's really kind of some of my own professional. But I also have like a, I guess, a personal, and I didn't realize this, when I think about my work to advance health equity, now in aging specifically, part of it was because I had my own personal experiences with discrimination you know, I trace my roots of advocacy to those experiences. You know, I always think about myself as this young Indian girl, nine years old, I was in a classroom, and I was raised in a predominantly homogenous white community, conservative, and then in the 70s. And people bullied me, I also had to deal with my own issues around colorism within my own community. So colorism, you know, kind of the prejudice, the discrimination within your own racial ethnic group. And in our culture, a lot of favoring people with lighter skin over those with darker skin. And so I didn't realize it. But later on, when I started to do a lot more self-reflection, that really shaped some of my journey as well. So I would say there's a lot of experiences from time I was born to now that really shape my passion.
0: Yeah, those formative aha moments or epiphanies or whatever are so interesting to think about as people decide to go into purpose-filled work. I mean, really, one of my podcast interviewees was talking about being other-centered. And I think that there is something so interesting when people are faced with discrimination or bullying or any of those things that there's two options. Well, maybe there's more, but there's an option to, like, make the world better or push against that and keep fighting a system or there's an option to accept it. And the change makers fight. And the changemakers remember those moments as kind of moments where you recognize inequality or recognize disparity or those things, even if you didn't have the language for it, which we didn't. We didn't have that language 30 years ago. I wonder if you can speak from that experience to today. Do you see a shift? Do you see a change? Is there something that's making you hopeful? Well, I think first and foremost, I think
1: people are speaking about it more now. I mean, and I think there's a recognition that we have dealt for centuries, overt racism. I mean, you know, the pandemic I think shed an important light on some of the grave challenges that were disproportionately seen in brown and black communities. I think what happened with George Floyd and all of those experiences I think opened people's eyes to, okay, we gotta do more and do it more effectively. And what we're doing right now is not enough, or we're not calling it out more intentionally. So there's a couple of things that I'm seeing, particularly in healthcare, and I can speak from a healthcare lens, that there is much more heightened recognition that we have not done enough as a healthcare system to address these inequities. And again, these examples being like the social determinants of health, things like, how do we address poverty? How is poverty affecting the fact that people can't get proper housing? and proper health care and behavioral health their access you know access to mental health services versus blaming the individual because you saw a lot of that and now it's more like no no there's definitely societal issues that we need to address so that's what has brought me hope i think i see more people understanding their own biases being able to under, you know say we all have our own biases about what's going on we're comfortable in our own cultures but we need to be more curious and be empathetic and work with humility with other cultures. And I I think I see more of that. I just feel like there's more recognition that we have to work with curiosity and empathy and humility. And I will say we have a lot of work ahead of us. This is a long, long journey. And there's definitely people who hear the word equity and sometimes start to have this reaction of like, we're using these words again. But I think these hot words, As somebody described Mm -hmm. them to me, let's find a way to ensure that we're showing actions, that we are advancing health equity. What are even even these small steps we're taking? I think that's what we're starting to see more and more of these small steps that, I mean, we had centuries of racism. It's going to take centuries, hopefully not that long, but it will take some time and we have to be Mm -hmm. patient and we got to work hard and effectively. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. So what is health equity? What does it mean? Well, I
1: think when we think about health equity, we look at populations, individuals, communities that don't have the same level of fairness or just access to, in this case, again, I'll use healthcare to services because there's something that is disproportionately affecting them. So as examples, we live in a society where there's still a lot of racism and racism has definitely impacted the way people get access to care for example there's a lot of statistics about mothers who don't get proper prenatal or postnatal care or care during their pregnancies because of assumptions or biases so we're seeing that so there's things around poverty that are influencing so i'll give an example if you work in a system healthcare system and everybody gets a doctor okay in a community but if somebody is a lower income in that community, they're going to have more challenges. Even if they have the same doctor, they may have more challenges getting those services because they don't have a refrigerator to put their insulin or they might not have air conditioning. And so they're dealing with heat strokes. So that is what health equity is seeking to achieve is you need to bring people up so they all can access the same level of care. And so that is really what we're all working on to achieve.
0: Yeah. Equity is so interesting to explain to people. I used to use that cartoon that has the kids trying to look over the fence. They're different sizes. So they have a different ability to see the resource that they're just given. It stops them from being able to see over the fence. So equality is giving everyone the same size block and equity is adjusting for what people need right? Is that the same as in this instance, it's not enough to give everyone a doctor. It's, we want to be trying to adjust for specific needs of individuals and communities. And communities. Yeah, I would say individuals and
1: communities. And we actually at the foundation commissioned some analyses that talked about the fact that Medicare beneficiaries are not all alike right? They all represent different races, ethnicities, they live in different areas of a state, you know, California, I'm based in California, so much variation, and they speak different languages, and they vary in functional abilities. So that is exactly what you said, that even if the state offers the same level of benefits, depending on where you live, for example, you're going to have inequities in how you get those benefits because of the fact that there's not enough doctors in your community to even get those services. So I can speak to the fact that there's this myth that aging, it goes back to me- not all Medicare beneficiaries are alike, the aging myth that once you age, aging is an equalizer, and it's not. That's another, I think, important thing to call out as well.
0: Yeah, I'd love to hear a bit more about access to health for older generations? Where are some of these pieces? What are some insights you have about where we're having more challenges than in other places? I would say the first thing is the
1: fact that we are seeing the demographic shift of older adults, meaning the global population is aging, and here in the U.S. too, larger proportion of older adults. We're seeing by 2035, we'll have more older adults than children in this country, and people are on average, living longer. So what we're finding is older adults and their families and their communities are not necessarily equipped to have all the services they need to age into their 70s, 80s, 90s. And there's numerous factors that could play into that. One example, as I like to bring up, is the fact that we did some analyses with the University of Chicago, NORC, that showed that most cannot afford, and and these are older adults, cannot afford and access the service and supports they need within their home and communities. And in fact, without selling their homes, three quarters of middle income seniors would have insufficient resources to pay for private assisted living. Three quarters, and that's your middle income seniors. And so that's one area that we think is critical is like, what are the policies that need to come into play to help support older adults, particularly that middle income senior bucket that are maybe on the lower income bracket of the middle income, I would say. And the other thing is, as people are living longer, they they may be living longer, but they're still going to have to address their disability that comes with aging, whether it's mobility, mobility, chronic conditions, cancer, you may be diagnosed with cancer, you get to be treated for cancer, you might survive cancer, but there's always sequelae. And how do you manage all of this? These are health issues, trends that are continuing to affect older adults. And I think the other thing I'll just say that is a real challenge is because not all Medicare or older adults are alike everybody has different needs. Some may need more social support, some may need more physical supports. some may need more mental health supports. And the system right now is not necessarily coordinated across the different parts of the health system. And I use social health as a part of the health system, it's not the physical. So there are definitely clear challenges. And then of course, there are opportunities to address some of these challenges.
0: You know, it's interesting. I interviewed a woman from an organization called Reengage. It's based in the UK, and they focus very much on the loneliest older population. This is a national health system. So literally everybody has a doctor. That's their local GP. And I said, well, how are you identifying the loneliest people? How do you even find them? And she said, well, we have these things called social prescribers. It is literally a person associated with your local GP, your local general practitioner who is there specifically to link people that are part of that GP's practice to social services. It's not a social worker necessarily, but they'll hook them up with this organization that's working on loneliness, they'll find them somebody to help them with groceries, other kinds of things, which is really a community-based care model. Is that even a possibility in a country like the United States to have something that's holistic in that way? That is really where we're
1: aiming for. We're aiming for this. We're aiming for what you just described is a recognition that in order to achieve total health of populations and particularly, you know, even for older adults, we're going to need to address the social, behavioral, and physical aspects of health. So your social prescribers are a great example of the fact that you can send somebody from a hospital to home. And say, okay, you're going to need rehab, you're going to need all these things to support you in your home. But if you you live alone, you are going to have much less chance of healing and rehab than somebody who has full social supports or lives in a multi generational household, or lives in a community that's actively engaged with one another. So We got to really be attuned to those that are socially isolated. And Vivek Murthy, our Surgeon General, put out a report, a call to action on addressing loneliness. And I find that is just so inspiring because in this case, the government is really aiming to come up with some real structures and processes to address something that, you know, quite honestly, when I was in medical school, you know, we might have had empathy and thought about like, oh, somebody home alone, but we didn't have an approach really. And we didn't really ask. And we have to ask people, and social workers do do that. I give kudos to the extended care team folks who do that. But at the same time, we have to be more integrated. So the answer to your question is, I am hopeful, because there's more dialogue, there's more recognition, there's more data, and there's more ask of people in the community to say, hey, my daughter lives 3,000 miles away, I'm feeling isolated, I'm feeling like not supported. What are the services out there? So a lot more we can do. One I think should also say is that community-based organizations, there's many out there that have those services to help people get more engaged in communities, maybe do more activities, joint group activities, or build more social connections. We should, I think, rely on some of their expertise to help in these social connections or be social prescribers.
0: Form. Yeah, I mean, really, one of our hypotheses at the Grandmother Collective is that we think by mobilizing older women specifically, but just individuals in a community who are predisposed to be caretakers in the way that you described your perfect grandmother, mom, and that they themselves, if given Resources, being equipped in various ways. If they are even able, like we have a group in Eastern Kentucky that wants to do some really basic mental health training to be able to be in a supportive environment and for their adolescents and their teenagers in a place where there is no therapy, there are no therapists. So the grandmothers are wondering can we make a solution for this? Can we have the access and resources to be able to be those community supports? For the longest time, I think we have community-based organizations, but I don't know that we support them the way that they need to be. They recognize what you're saying, which is how integral they are.
1: Well, I really appreciate you calling that out because I agree. And I think you're starting to see a lot of dialogue and even some action about, for example, managed care plans incentivized to contract with community-based organizations. So a great example is we have a Medicaid waiver, we call it Medi-Cal here in California, that is focusing on what they call community supports, where Medi-Cal will actually provide payments for managed care plans to contract with housing or with food banks, you know, a lot of the social drivers of health, rental assistance, things like that. And that is something we're seeing more of because again, clear recognition that there are these organizations that do some really important work that is close to the home and community of folks. And we know that people would rather seek their care closer to where they live or work. And I think that's an important, I think a really, really important distinction. And, and I will say also in Medicare, I would say Medicare Advantage, there's also something called the special supplemental benefits for the chronically ill. It's called SSBCI for short. And basically, this was a supplemental payment um, incentives for Medicare managed care plans to put as part of their benefit offering, well, I want to, as a benefit package, give, if somebody lives in the hot desert and they need air conditioning, we could offer that as part of a benefit. So you'll see many more Medicare managed care plans now offering these supplemental benefits as part of their benefit package. And that was through work that we are very proud of as a foundation. We helped along with others to say, in in order for us to have holistic care, person-centered care community level care, these kind of policy levers need to happen.
0: Yeah, I'd love to hear more about what are some other policies or spaces where you feel like we need to be kind of pushing and driving change?
1: Some of this we touched on, but some of the work that we have, and again, our focus more on policies that support bold and equitable services in home and community, we are really looking at health and aging supports, the services that are most needed for particularly older adults. So one area is something called long-term services and supports, which is currently a Medicaid benefit, which if you're a lower income and you're eligible for Medicaid, you can get some of these LTSS, long-term services support services. There was a lot of activity in the policy realm at the federal level to expand LTSS. And some of it was not very successful. So one of the things we feel is very important is incremental reforms, and long term services and supports or LTSS reforms needs to happen. So we would love to see LTSS for all, right, not just for Medicaid. So that is something that we are working actively on informing as a foundation with many others. And the other thing that we are working on is something that we think is really important, which is the MPA, Multi-Sector Plans for Aging. We think these are plans that can help states address challenges that we talked about today on this podcast. You know, these MPAs are blueprints for states to help their residents age well, and it will allow a state to actually have goals and objectives created that focus on the well-being of not just existing older adults and individuals with disabilities, but also future aging generations. As an example, California has its own MPA that was commissioned or launched in 2021. So it's in its third year. And it is a 10-year blueprint that focuses on things, on housing and health. It focuses on equitable aging for all. It has tenants of caregiving in it. There's five bold goals. There's 23 strategies. And it's helping to inform policies that need to happen at the legislature, at the level of the Assembly and and the Senate. So we're putting a lot of effort and work on ensuring that California is successful in executing its MPA, but we also want to see every state have an MPA in the coming years.
0: I think one of the things that I hear from folks is that Everyone feels that the healthcare system is difficult to navigate, regardless of whether or not they have money and good insurance and whatever, that it it inherently feels unfair (laughs) regardless of your status. So are some of these policies also sort of recognizing some of the stuff that kind of affects all of us?
1: Well, one, it goes back to our conversation
0: earlier about health equity,
1: First of all, recognizing that not everybody is the same, that you can't have cookie cutter approaches or policies because you may worsen the inequities if you don't address some of the things we talked about, the social drivers of health, the things that make care so inequitable currently or access to quality health care inequitable. So, yes, the policies are aiming, and that's why I think you're hearing more about health equity agendas in state and federal policies, because we need to be more inclusive. We don't want to worsen. A lot of historical policies actually made inequities a lot worse in housing, redlining. There's so many things you can talk about. So I think there's now realization that we got to be very cautious of what policies we implement.
0: I guess I'm sort of also recognizing the ways in which stuff that should be beneficial for most of the people can be so politicized. And so there's also this care that needs to be taken in describing the change that you're trying to effect through these policies as well, so that it doesn't get overtaken. And people end up saying, well, I also am not able to access this, or everybody has a problem. And therefore, we kind of forget that we really also have some duty to take care of the most vulnerable, marginalized members
1: of our society. I think you absolutely are right. And I think there's ways to mobilize, like you're helping everyone. We always say that if you can help the most vulnerable, this will positively impact all of society. It trickles up. It trickles up. And a great example, great example um, is the work on implementing things around the ADA, the Disabilities Act, things that needed like ramps and things to provide more access for those with disability. I mean, it certainly was critical to help those with disabilities, but it helped the broader population in terms of mobility access. I mean, there are so many things that it didn't just help that population, it has broader social impact, social and health impacts. So I think that's the message that we convey and we think it's critical. And we have an obligation, obviously, I feel as a society that we need to help those that are in more need. I mean, we're seeing that, like an example, older adults are the fastest growing segment of the unhoused in this country. And it's a travesty for all of us to say, how can we let particularly our more vulnerable older adult populations live on the streets and not have a roof over their heads or all the supports they need in their home?
0: Yeah, and getting on those lists for housing when you're trying to get senior housing or whatever is uh, an incredible challenge. It's
1: an incredible challenge, but there's a lot of activation and investments going on to create more housing. But also we have to then in parallel address these upstream factors because you could build all the housing, but if people are still dealing with substance use disorders and they can't get access to care, you're going to continue to see unhoused folks. I always say, don't just put the band-aids on. You got to look at the root causes. And that's one of the things our foundation is really aiming for is really focused on those upstream root causes that are impacting our priority populations here.
0: I often say systems, not symptoms.
1: That's a doctor term. Yes, that mantra holds. Absolutely.
0: But people sometimes really have a hard time understanding what a system is. So it's also a lot of work to dig into the structures that hold us up, you know? We've run the gamut, I think, here, and I've enjoyed learning so much from you today. Do you have any final parting thoughts that you want to share or say? I really appreciated your
1: thoughtful questions. I always like to say that it is a journey, this work, our work rooted in health equity. We just don't, don't wanna just talk the talk. We wanna really activate some, there's some clear actions and we're doing a lot of community mobilizing. I think hearing and elevating the voices of community in our work is really critical. We have a lot of important data, like quantitative data and things that say, okay, here are the things that are wrong with our system, okay? But we also have to hear directly from the individuals who are most impacted. And that's something that we talk about human-centered design. We talk about co-designing solutions with the beneficiaries, the individuals in mind. That's something that I want to reinforce. I feel like that if we don't do that, we're going to be continuing to design systems that are not going to support people the way they want to be supported. And so that would be my parting thoughts. There's many, but that's something that I'm very committed to in our organization and in my
0: career. Well, very much aligned with our idea that older women should be co leading for change. So glad to see that alignment. You said something about that. We call those
1: the community health workers or people with lived experience, having them as part of a workforce solution. We're such believers of those models that you can't, in behavioral health, in mental health is a great example where you see peer support, lived experience. And if you get women, older women who have dealt with this and it can contribute back to the other grandmothers and other community members, that's what we need to see more of. Thank you,
0: Sarita.